Hi, this is Judy Collins, and you're listening to the Since You've Asked podcast. What I'll give you since you've asked is all my time together. Take the rugged sunny days, the warm and rocky weather. Take the roads that I have walked along, looking for tomorrow's time. Peace of mind. Hi, this is Judy Collins, and you're listening to the Since You've Asked podcast. Today I'm talking to an actress and singer who is referred to as the voice of Broadway. From Broadway to television to movies, she is a star in all she does. Please welcome Betty Buckley to the program. What a privilege and a treat to see you. Oh, I'm, I'm such a not... fan of yours. You know that. But well, I'm like, I... I come see you when I'm in New York and you're in concert. I'm oh, always there. I am so glad. And I love you and I love your work. I was ta- I have had dinner last night with my two gorgeous uh, 20-something nephews. And when I told them that I was going to interview Betty Buckley, they kind of went crazy. Oh, they that's so the, nice. They Thank said, you. the Betty Buckley? She is, she's known as the voice of Broadway. Uh, and uh, that, I said, yes. And I, I was fortunate her. that that wonderful critic and writer Jeremy Gerard said that about me in the New York Magazine. So I absconded with that <laughs> quote. <laughs> and you own it, my darling. You own Thank it. You. It's a fabulous Thank career. You. And, you know, I'm, I'm so pleased because... I don't. I didn't know some of the things about you that I got to read in mm. your background. And first of all, that you were Miss Fort Worth. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> oh Starting out on top, and it was 1966, and that you were also the runner-up for the Miss Texas competition, <laughs> and this led you to being invited to perform at the Miss America pageant. Yes. Where you were spotted by a talent scout. Tell me about that. That must have been such a thrill for a girl in those days. Yeah, I've been performing um, since I was 11 and professionally since I was 15. And so I, you know, had done a lot, a lot of shows. And I was recruited to enter the Miss Fort Worth pageant. Pageants are not something that I feel comfortable with or about. And yet they've given me many opportunities and scholarship money and stuff. So I, you know, I shouldn't shouldn't have a negative perspective of pageants but I'm a feminist so I don't like I don't like young women's bodies being compared or that all really irks me but uh, when I was at the Miss Texas pageant the producer of the Miss America pageant was this wonderful guy named George Cavalier and he uh, invited me the following year uh, to be a guest entertainer at the Miss America pageant and essentially representing all of the losers in America who never make it to Atlantic City. <laughs> that was my claim to fame. I was really proud of that um, because prior to that, just uh, the people that had been asked to perform for the numbers that tie the theme of the evening together in Atlantic City in those days were former Miss Americas or former state uh, uh, titleists who were runners up to Miss America. And so, um, 
so while I was performing, it was like a four night thing, three pre, pre previous nights, and then the telecast night. Um, a friend had contacted this agent and said, you need to watch this girl. So I got a phone call uh, in Atlantic City saying, please come to New York and audition for our agency. We want to represent you. And so I did. I flew into New York and auditioned for a room of like 12 agents. And there was a very famous agent named Eric Shepard who stood up and said, sign her and left the room. <laughs> and so, so I was represented by them, but I had to go back and finish college. Fortunately, there was this wonderful man named Roger Hess who went on to become a big Broadway producer and is still my very good friend. He lives in New York and in Florida. He um, he kept encouraging me to come to New York City and give it a shot and I uh, had gone on a USO tour the summer after my uh, senior year in college and Miss America Deborah Barnes and a couple, a couple of the other girls and I were taken into the <clears throat> intensive care units for the war and that was very sobering for me like I you know I you know saw the results of war my father had been a lieutenant colonel in the air force Mm -hmm. so when I came back and he was very much a, a, a conservative man who believed in the righteousness of war and I didn't anymore, you know, and mm-hmm. as a child of the 60s, it was the summer of 1968, I just lost all faith in the whole thing, you know, um, and so I gave up my dreams of moving to New York and took a job at the Fort Worth Press because I had majored in journalism in college, mm-hmm. and I was there on a journalism scholarship at TCU, and I worked on the press the whole time I was in college, and so they gave me a job, and I just decided, that's it, I'm going to stay in Fort Worth, I'm going to work on the newspaper, and we'll see what happens, and mm-hmm. um Roger kept calling, calling, and he finally got me to come to New York, and I got my first Broadway show my first day in New York City, which was 1776, and I debuted the role of Martha Jefferson on Broadway, so that was pretty fortuitous. The whole thing was very divinely inspired, so. Well, you have a divine muse in your life, and the things that happen to you seem to be just part of the plan. Do you ever feel that? It just kind of... I actually do feel that. Um, When I was 13, I was looking out over this West Texas plain from my bedroom window, and I had this vision of what kind of voice I would have as I grew up and how it would affect people. And I knew that I would be on Broadway. I knew all of that. And so at 35, when they brought the recording of Memory into my dressing room at the Winter Garden for me to hear, I heard the recording and I remembered that 13-year-old vision. And I thought, wow, it's taken from age 13 to 35, but this is it. This is it. This is it. I want to talk about your Broadway career after. 1776 and of course it it followed it it came came after that with Pippin playing Mm -hmm. a role in Pippin and Mm -hmm. playing Rose in Gypsy my professional debut was as Dainty June uh, when I was 15 years old in our regional theater production of Gypsy Ah. and I remember it was a theater Uh in the round in those days even better even better uh, than Broadway (laughs) yeah I I would stand at the top of the aisles and watch our uh, Mama Rose like a hawk and think I'll play that role someday and the first time I played it I think I was in my 40s or something and um, at the Southern Arizona Light Opera Company and I wasn't mature enough 
you'd think I was by then, but I wasn't. Uh, and my my performance, when I've seen videos of it, I thought it was too, I wasn't grounded enough as a woman to really take that role on. Years and years later, I think it was 1998, I think, I played uh, Mama Rose at the Paper Mill Playhouse. And oh, that, yes. that production received a lot of attention yes, and did. acclaim. And I, I I did a better job then because I was older. That's wonderful. Um, so, yeah, I was, I was very happy with that uh, version of the show. And they wanted to move it <clears throat> to New York. They wanted to move it to Toronto for a run there, the uh, uh, a group of producers there. And Arthur Lawrence said no. He, what? He, yeah, he he came to see it. Um, he's a character, man, that Arthur Lawrence... <clears throat> You know, the uh, many books that have been written about him and stuff. But, you know, I was this devotee of Arthur Lawrence. He wrote my favorite musicals. And mm. Stephen Sondheim, of course, is like the king, you know. And so they both came to see the show. And it was it was amazing. Yeah, I was just like ecstatic that they were there. And the show that afternoon went as well as it possibly could mm. have. It was a beautiful. All of us just pulled together and it was incredible. And we got, you know... Four standing ovations with full house standing ovations within the performance. Oh my God. And I walked off stage and I thought, okay, I can't do it any better than that. And so at least I gave my best for, for these guys. When I got off stage, Sondheim was standing in the hallway near my dressing room. And I went up to him. Yeah, I was so excited to see him. And he was like, he'll tell you, he'll tell you. And he just kind of dismissed me. You mean and, Sondheim, you know, I, Sondheim. 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 Yeah. And so I went to my dressing room and Arthur Lawrence was in my dressing room. And he said, well, without a doubt, you're a virtuoso, but you can't play uh, Rose. Ah! And I was like, well, uh, okay, uh, what, what should I do different? I would like to follow your direction, you know, and he proceeded to, you know, just take me apart in my performance apart and my mm. interpretation. And... Um, it was very painful. And so I tried to keep my poise and I, I said, um, and this was in the time period that, that these wonderful producers wanted to move it for a run in Toronto. And so I said, could I call you and you give me more notes and t- right. talk to me about the role? Because whatever it is I'm missing, I would like to bring to it. And he says, all right, all right, you can call me. So I called him and... Um, it, it, we had this conversation, and I, you know, something inside me saying not to give the details of that. But um, I tried to, you know, be very respectful and poised within his castigation. And and uh, at the end of the phone call, I said, "Well, can we talk further?" And he said, "Yeah, you can call me." And then a couple of days later, a mutual friend of ours called me and said, "Lawrence said to tell Betty Buckley never to call him again." Oh. And so he put the kibosh on this uh, uh, this move to Toronto. Mm-hmm. That was really painful, and I went, you know, in, to my therapist with this encounter because it was so excruciating because I had really deified these guys, you know, beyond. And um, it, it was in many ways good because 
I, you know, I thought, okay, it's never cool to deify your heroes. You know, it's good to have heroes, but you can't expect, you you can't have those kind of expectations. And so that, that was good because everybody came off their pedestals (laughs) and I started to see things differently. And my therapist was very wise. She had read about, but both of them, Arthur Lawrence and Stephen Sondheim had very, abusive mothers and I brought I'm I know I brought a, a depth of humanity to the role of uh, Rose that was a, a little different and I think they didn't want to see this monster mother that he'd written in those terms you know in, in her in terms of her human vulnerability and frailty and stuff which um and so i that's my feeling about it because it was certainly nothing otherwise that i'd done i mean i sang it really well and yeah. sondheim himself said um you know he'd never heard it sing sung that way but i think it was about an interpretation in the in the role um and i'm committed to that it's like i I don't think there are any such thing as monsters on the planet. I think there are human beings whose definition of love is aberrated by their experiences in their childhood. Yes. But when when I play a monster, it's incumbent upon me to bring um, the humanity to that and help people understand um, what what's happening. So... Um, that's my mission, and you know, if, if people don't like it, what can I say? <laughs> I want to know about the way you write, what you write. I have a there's a rumor that I have heard that you're writing a musical that I inspired. So I I'm in humbly asked you about. Well, that. it's a it's actually an animated short film that you ah. inspired, and um, I, I I wish I could tell you all the details, and maybe when the film is released, I could come back and talk to you about it in of detail. Of course, we'll talk later. It's a it's a beautiful little story. Um, it happened at your concert at the Carlisle. I don't know if that's my microphone or oh, it's probably me or, messing around. Oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> okay. Um, it happened at the Carlisle at at your concert, and it was. Um, I took a friend of mine and another couple of friends there to celebrate his birthday, and we were in the corner table, um, like to your left. So I, I really only saw your left profile in this show. And, but I, every time you're at the Carlisle, I'm there. And, um, thank you, so, thank you. Thank yeah, you. I, I adore you. And so this event happened that inspired this story. Um, and so I've been thinking about the story for several years. And oh. before, before the, uh, my set of concerts at the Carlisle in uh, see, February of 2000. 20, um, this, this, uh, story just kept saying, you've got to write this, you've got to write this. So I thought it was a song. And so I wrote this piece and, uh, I took it to my pianist Christian and he was like, this isn't a song. And I said, oh, okay. So I went (laughs) back and I tried to, to, you know, really, uh, consolidate the wording and try to put it in A, B sections, you know, if there was, if if it was possible. And I really wasn't able to do it. I, you know, I kept working on it, working on it. Even we went to New York about a month in advance so I could teach a class there and I kept working on it and he's kept rejecting the piece. So then 
I finally was like, I love this story. Maybe it's just a story. And so I was at my favorite restaurant in New York. It's called Bond Street, downtown uh, Bond Street restaurant. And I heard this, I was going to the ladies' room and I heard this piece of music. And I was like, that's, that's the music. That's what I want to hear to this story. And so I, you know, I recorded it and in the bathroom. And then I, I I went back to the maitre d' and I said, what, what is that piece of music? And they looked it up on their playlist, gave me the name. It was like a couple of Norwegian guys. (laughs) It was doing this like really modern piece of music that I loved that was very joyous. So I found them online and I, 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 took my story and I read it and recorded it over their track and it was exactly the length of my piece and I was like this is kind of wondrous so I took it back to Christian Christian Jacob and he Christian is a brilliant pianist and um, he also has composed film scores several film scores but uh, three of Clint Eastwood's most recent movies and so I took it back to him and I said this see this is how it sits in this piece of joyous music and he still ignored it for (laughs) because then then the pandemic happened so in April, when we got, you know, after we'd come home at, uh, in March, I called him again and I said, I'm serious. We've got something here. I want you to score this story like you would score a little movie. And so he sent me like about four different motifs. And finally, I felt one that I just thought was perfect. It's a very, very joyous piece of music. And I said, yes, this is it. So please do this, record this. And I went in. He made his track in his living room. My bass player, Trey Henry, recorded his in his living room. They live in L.A. And then um, I was in Fort Worth, and I went to this funky little studio in Fort Worth and recorded my narration of the story. And then this wonderful friend of mine, Jamie Haddad, recorded his percussion and drums in Cleveland. And then we sent all the tracks to this brilliant engineer, Jason Warmer, whom I met through T-Bone Burnett when he produced a, an album for me several years ago. I sent all those tracks and he mixed this beautiful track. And then I'm listening to it and I'm like, oh, this is great, but how do I release it? You know. Mm. And then I was like, this is not a song. This is an animated short film. Uh-huh. How do I make an animated short film? Yeah. So I just started calling people in July of 2020 that I knew in animation, and one person led me to the next, to the next. And universally, everyone's loved the story and the piece of music that Christian gloriously uh, composed. And finally, in December, I met this wonderful animator, character designer named Eugene Salandra. And he immediately drew some sketches for me. And I was like, oh, my God, that's gorgeous. And then he introduced me to this beautiful uh, woman director named Sue Parado, who was like one of the first female directors in animation and television and she loved the piece and offered to do it for free it was very kind I said no 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 it's not going to be for free I need a budget just tell me what a six minute film you know costs and so she did kindly did this budget and I think everybody was just being really kind right so I got the what it would cost and I then 
started reaching out to people I knew with deep pockets. And I reconnected with friends in Austin who are independent producers. And they called me in tears, having listened to the track, and said, we love this so much. And we think it's a beautiful story that and the message needs to be in the world now we're going to pay for the whole thing and I was like what <laughs> and I mean we were dancing around my oh, house just fabulous. like screaming and yelling that our dear friends in Austin uh, decided to do this and so I immediately called Sue the director and I said we've got the money and she's like are you fucking kidding oh, excuse my language she's, <laughs> oh, no, she's like are you kidding me and I was like no I'm not kidding you we got it so I you know met the this wonderful attorney. Everybody came aboard, you know, uh, compromising their fees because of the nature of the project. And um, and so we're working with two animation houses, one in Poland that do beautiful illustrations mm-hmm. and one, in, uh, they're called Blue Blue and a company in uh, Canada called Tonic. And together we're all, and then we have this wonderful um, designer of, uh, animator named Vicki Anderson who's doing the main character's animation and stuff. Mm. And so we've been working on it uh, totally since December and then we reached out to you because you're one of the characters in the the story and got your permission and and uh, we're, we're toodling along and hopefully it'll be done by the end of October but I love it. I just love it. And every time I watch it even it's in, in its rough storyboard animatic form I just weep because it's so the characters in it and just the remembrance of that experience of watching you and mm-hmm. it's like it's a it's a very sweet story I'm about so a love for you. music you know I'm so, so frou- proud of you for doing <laughs> this and it just shows me again your courage your persistence your energy your imagination this artistic drive that you've always had. And it is fascinating how our lives can go in these different areas with utilizing whatever it is that drives us Mm -hmm. from this vision of yours. I keep that 13-year-old vision of you having that idea of where you were going to be now mm-hmm. or in in your in your life. Fortunately, I've been you know teaching three classes a week throughout the pandemic. I took uh-huh. the summer off, but that was um, on Zoom. That yeah, you know, I've been teaching for years and years with the uh, for the Terry Schreiber Studio in New York. Yes. Terry was is a brilliant director, acting teacher who really influenced my life so enormously. And so he got me to start teaching years and years ago. And I've taught, you know, and I used to teach about three, four times a year, five-day workshops at his studio. But due to the pandemic, uh, they asked me to teach on Zoom. And then I started teaching three classes a week on Zoom for the whole year which was extremely exhausting because they're like four to five hour classes, you know, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursdays. So I'm, you know, I've taken some time off to regroup and um, I'll be starting again in September. But it was amazing to me that I could really impart the tools because I teach meditation as the means for focusing your mind. And I, uh, you know, and a meditative, a universal spiritual philosophy as the means of making your choices as an actor or storyteller or singer. So, so that you're connected. I talk a lot about communication and connection with your audience and what the essential uh, truth of that is, how it's achieved. And when I discovered that um, in my 
I guess, 20s, this methodology applying, um, no, I guess, yeah, late 20s, early 30s, I found this methodology and it just transformed my life and it transformed my work. I've been meditating since I was about 24, and but then I found the application of the meditation to my work and that it's a this very practical tool or set of tools. And so that's what I teach. And I've seen people's lives over and over again completely transformed by the commitment to and use of these tools. And I was amazed that, that I could help people on zoom like really transform their work and and it's been it's been very gratifying to watch people's talent just unfold and their ability to be be articulate and uh, clear focused storytellers in song and in monologues um, in their acting so it's been very very gratifying but you know the tedium of the Zoom connection for four or five hours an evening for three oh, days a week boy. was quite a lot. So um, I'm hopefully going to be starting. A, the plan is to start again in September. But again, that lazy little kid of me <laughs> wants to go. Can we just take a little more time? Yeah. <laughs> so I have well, to. I have to keep her in gear. Yes, indeed. I I wanted to ask you about audiences. I too have. I mean, I don't know if I would be here. First of all, I don't drink anymore. I'm sober now for many years. But congratulations! Even, even when I was drinking, I had the I was I used to sing with my eyes shut and never talk on the stage, which of course is very oh, different cool. from what you've always. Done, I like it. Always- I like it. <laughs> I think that's great. I just closed my eyes, and it was. But of course. Then getting sober and getting a, a whole new look on life. And also, it wasn't until I was sober that I found my own. I'd always been to visit the Maharishi and went to to see Krishnamurti and uh, did the, the uh, yoga with the Satchitananda. But I found my real guide after I got sober. So it's 43 years that I have a process that I do, which is meditation. And I don't know how I would be on the planet, first of all, or secondly, how I would work and have a life without this. That exactly. Connection. I mean, that is so centerful. Like you, I think we both share a, a love and a passion for our audiences. Don't mm-hmm. you think that's something yes. vital about the other part of the talent that we have? That we completely people. Yeah, it means a lot. I was in, I did Pippin on Broadway. I replaced Jill Clayberg in the original Broadway company, and I did the show for two years and eight months. It's the longest I've ever done anything. Um, but it was, uh, it was very interesting, and it was pre-finding meditation. And I, you know, like out of eight performances a week, maybe I'd hit four you know would be good and then I'd be like what you know I couldn't figure out what the source of the like inspiration would happen but I didn't have a handle on how to facilitate inspiration you know to 
connect me. And then I I went through this whole existential crisis of why am I doing this? If uh-huh. is is it just for the applause? I mean, uh-huh. if it's just for the applause, what does that mean? It's just about people's opinion. What does mm-hmm. that mean? And then when I found and it was not gratifying, it was hard. It was tedious. And and I mean, I love singing and I love music and that's the essential drive and I love storytelling, but the reason, the raison d'etre was missing. And then when I found meditation and I found what connection is to other human beings and what this essential truth is of oneness and unity and how to be a storyteller that helps remind, being an instrument of that consciousness to remind the audience of who they really are. Absolutely. Then I had purpose. Absolutely. And purpose, you'll do anything with purpose. You know, you'll work hard for purpose. You'll give all for purpose. You know, you you care because you care. Tell us about being in Cats. I've always thought, oh my God, what fun. Oh my God, what fun. It was fun. It was an incredible experience. The the time period, the eight weeks it took us to prepare um, and working with Trevor Nunn, the brilliant, like one of the greatest directors in the world, Jillian Lin, one of the greatest choreographers in the world, um, John Napier, the brilliant designer, of course, Andrew Lord Weber. It just, Mm. it was amazing. And, but the the eight weeks with Trevor were were divine. I learned so much. and it was right before I had done a show called Getting My Act Together and Taking It on the Road and discovered the application of the meditation to the actual work and it just transformed everything in my in my work. And following that I did went back to Eight is Enough for my final season there and then I did a film called Tender Mercies. Yeah, and Tender I Mercies, kind of great movie. Thank you. It's a beautiful film. And I really felt myself come through the doorway of my potential. And then I got Cats, which was very arduous getting it. Uh, Like I auditioned for it. And they told my agent, um, who's this wonderful lady named Joanna Ross, they said, uh, no, we don't want Betty. She's she's uh, she radiates. She's from Texas, and she radiates health and well-being, and we're looking for a young woman who radiates death and dying. And so, you know, because I was tall and this, you know, strapping girl from Texas and whatever. And so I told my agent rather audaciously, I said, well, they'll be back. Because I had this very strong feeling about the role and that it was my turn to do a thing that let people know who, what I actually do in the musical theater. I mean, I had this, you know, several shows in my youth, but I was like 35 and I found this meditation and this was like a serious, you know, uh, dramatic soprano role and I was like, they'll be back. Because I knew who my, my, peer group were and there was like in the on page six every week there was a different actress singer who wanted the role of Grisabella but I just I had this feeling about it again you know that we're talking about these kinds of divine inspiration things six months later Joanna called and said they want to see you again for cats and I said I told you and so I went in and I sang memory again and Trevor Nunn came up on the stage at the Winter Garden Theater and he said, more suicidal, more suicidal. So I I sang it a second time, you know, and then he came up and directed me again and I sang it a third time. And by the third time through, I mean, I was just my, I was turned, I felt like I was turned inside out and I thought, what, what more 
can I show them that, you know, rehearsals won't better. Of course, I'll get better at this, but I've certainly showed them an essence of what I can do and the power of what I can do. And so he still looked like he was in great consternation. He was standing there in the audience with, you know, um, in the house with Andrew and Jillian and, you know, Trevor and the casting people. And so I walked to the edge of the stage and I said, Mr. Nunn, may I speak to you? And he said, yes. And he came down to the corner of the stage and I said, I know you've been auditioning for six months and I know you've seen a lot of really gifted people all over the country. And there, I, I, you know, I... There are any number of people who can do this role as well as I can. I said, but nobody can do it better. Mm. And, it, and it's my turn. Oh, <laughs> and he, but I knew that because I knew of the elite four or five yeah. singing actresses in the business that they'd all had their moments uh-huh. to demonstrate what they really do. Right. And, but I hadn't. I had done a bunch of stuff, but not that thing. And so, like, he just still looked really like, why are you talking to me? You know, because I'm (laughs) British and you're, yeah. And so I was like, uh, okay. So I was really embarrassed and I got out of there. And the the stage manager goes, yeah, good job. And I was like, really, you think so? And she said, Betty, sometimes you have to represent yourself. And the rehearsal pianist was like, good job. And so I left and I was, and I called Joanna and I said, Joanna, this is what happened. And I told her what I'd said. And she goes, oh, Betty, when are you going to learn to keep your mouth shut? He's British. He doesn't want to hear from some Texas girl about why he should cast you you've got to learn to keep your mouth shut in this business and I was like right I'm really sorry I just love the part so much and I you know I know I can do it and blah blah blah. so I took myself to this restaurant that I loved that used to be on Madison Avenue called Woods and I wish it were still there it was such a great place so I took myself there to cheer myself up and um I, Joanna knew I loved this place. So while I was sitting there, you know, having lunch, uh, the phone rang at the bar and they brought me to the phone and Joanna said, are you sitting down? And I said, no. And she said, sit down. And so I said, down. she goes, you got cats. And I was like, yes, I got it. So then we went through this intense rehearsal process, which was like, I'd, I'd say a, a full month of improvisational exercises based on the Grotowski methodology wow. and um, to develop this group yeah. consciousness yeah. that was amazing. Oh. Anyway, I learned so much oh, from Trevor Nunn. Yeah. I adore that guy beyond, and Jillian Lynn, who's unfortunately, you know, passed away. But they were both great mentor teachers of mine and I felt through Cats was and through Tender Mercy's book that both of those pieces were like my master's thesis that I came through the doorway of my potential before that I was a kid that was studying and learning and growing and then both those pieces brought me through the doorway of my potential and I knew that I knew how to work like I knew that I knew what I was doing after that but I, you know, I'll be eternally grateful to Trevor and to Andrew and to Jillian because what I learned um, was just huge, huge, huge about my skill set and how to, the application of it and what communication with an audience is and the application of the meditative tools to that. And also my wonderful voice teacher, Paul Gabbert, brought me through that. He was just amazing. Mm-hmm. You know, I was studying with him constantly and when I'd reach a point of panic I would call him and he would right away bring his studio was on 
between 54th and 55th, uh, right on the same, the 7th Avenue, uh, where the, the back door of the Winter Garden is, and I would speed over there oh. to his studio on a lunch break, and he would—he just saw me through the whole thing. It was amazing. Oh my mm. What a story, and what a lesson! I—they say we always get the lessons that we're meant to have. So yeah. this was an incredible learning experience for you that you contributed to, and that you benefited from. How amazing yeah. is that? It was amazing. And then I got to work with him again, Trevor Nunn, in Sunset Boulevard in London and Sunset oh, Boulevard in New York, which s- both times oh. were a huge blessing. But the, the thing about Cats that was tough was the job assignment was stop the show because they knew that the song could stop the show because of the wonderful Elaine Page, which she'd done in London. Mm-hmm. And I'd stopped shows before, Judy, but I'd... I didn't know why, you know, like I, I knew like divine inspiration would happen. And so it would happen, but I didn't know that there was an actual methodology to stopping the show. And, you know, it's like all these teachers came together and were like, this is how you do it. And I was like, okay. And then it's the application of all those lessons. So it becomes a part of my own internal understanding which is you know there's a translation issue even with language because and what I learned in that time period too working with a great director was if a director says blue you don't know what blue he means Mm -hmm. you know it's like there's so many shades of blue and so I had to learn how to listen through to the feelings that whatever the instruction was, what it inspired in me, and to trust that whatever came up in me, even if it felt negative, was useful. And that was was fascinating, because I didn't know about that. I didn't know about the imprecision of language. I was always trying to do what people told me to do, but take them literally. And what I learned in this process was you can't, function in art with literal interpretation you have to go beneath that to what it feels like what what do you feel from this person trying to talk to you in words that mean something very different to him than they do to you and the same with Jillian Um, and ultimately what was arrived at was um, in the performance was what Jillian wanted what like one night uh, I, it's a long story, but anyway, I, oh, I learned it, a lot it, working. <laughs> well, the, you know, when it finally worked and it all came together, I was doing, I was consciously doing what Trevor told me, but I was using tools that were the exact opposite of the words that he'd said. Mm-hmm. And that produced the the stop the show, right? And uh, he came back and he goes, that's it, that's it. That's mm-hmm. what I was saying. And I was like, Wow, that's interesting because I was doing so I learned a lot about opposites in art. If you if you understand the lyrics and the phrasing, that's what I was taught by my teacher with whom I worked for thirty-two years. And I am very grateful for that. As you said, your teacher has helped you so much. And we're lucky to have people that can do that. Who was your teacher? His name was Max Margulies, and he died. I studied from the eight, from the time from the year of sixty five when I started to lose my voice because I was on the road all the time. And I was, yes, I never studied singing as a young person. I sang in all the choirs and the opera choruses and the church choirs and so on, but I never studied singing. In a way, I'm glad because you know if you wind up with a bad teacher, you could have very bad luck. And yes. I just so happened to ask two of the people that knew the right person, 
One was Harry Belafonte's musical director, his guitar player, and the other was a pair of uh, people who, uh, more, uh, Mordecai and Bauman, the Baumans, who owned the um, uh, Indian Hill Camp up in Lenox Hill, which all, all the dancers and all the musicians went there. And they knew the same person that um, Harry Belafonte's musician, musical director gave to me. It was a total out of the blue miracle. They both gave him my name, gave him this, gave me the same name. They gave me a phone number. And when things got terrible with the voice in 65, I called him finally. And I said, um, I've been, you've been recommended to me by uh, Bogoslav and by uh, the Baumans, and I'd like to come to you. He said, well, who are you? What do you do? I told him. He said, I'm not interested. Oh. I said, why? He said, you don't, you people are not serious. I said, I'm very serious. I said, and I begged and pleaded and so on. And uh, he's finally caved in. He said, okay, well, why don't you come see me? And so I said, where, where do you live? And he told me. And so I walked out my front door of my apartment at 164 West 79th and I turned right and I walked past the elevator and rang his door bell. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> and uh, after he lived in the same building, same building, same floor. You're kidding no. me. That's insane. <laughs> <laughs> so these, these people that work with us who know what they're doing, I don't know, they come on angels' wings, I'm sure. Thank you for listening to the Since You've Asked podcast. 